0: They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zeppound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The New Statesman
1: I'm Ida Vok Europe correspondent in Berlin.
2: I'm Megan Gibson, foreign editor in London. I'm Katie Stallard, Senior Editor, China
0: and Global Affairs in Washington, D.C.
1: It's Thursday, the 27th of April, and you're listening to World Review from The New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs.
2: A delicate three-day ceasefire in Sudan has allowed some foreign countries, including the UK, to evacuate their nationals after intense fighting broke out in the country on the 15th of April.
1: Madam Deputy Speaker, the situation in Sudan is extremely (laughs) grave. More than 427 people have been killed, including five aid workers. Over 3,700 people have been injured.
2: We discuss how the country reached this point and how the conflict might develop.
0: And Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's presumed bid for the US presidency appears to be coming apart before it's even officially begun. Does DeSantis still have a chance of winning the Republican nomination over Donald Trump?
1: We reject the culture of losing that has infected the Republican party in recent years. In Florida, we know that there is no substitute for victory. And when we have. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. Tensions have been escalating between the Sudanese army and paramilitary rapid support forces for years. The two worked together to stage a coup against the fragile civilian government in October 2021, enforcing military rule on the country. But in the 18 months since, the leaders of the two factions, the army's general Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, who is Sudan's de facto leader, And his former deputy, the RSF's General Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, more commonly known as Hamebdi, have been locked in an increasingly bitter power struggle, which erupted into war this month. Megan, you've written a piece about this. Can you perhaps just give us a bit of the recent background and history of civil conflict in Sudan and just walk us through how these tensions erupted into what seems to be pretty much a civil war?
2: Yeah, definitely. So you could go back decades to talk about the roots of this particular conflict. But I think a natural place to start would be April 2019, in which that was a time when a popular uprising in the country overthrew the autocrat Omar al-Bashir, who had been ruling for 30 years. And there was weeks, weeks of protests before that happened. And the two generals you mentioned before, General Burhan, who heads up the Sudan Army and Hamedi, who heads up the paramilitary, the RSF, were working together to help overthrow that, even though they were once allies of Bashir. So, after that, a civilian government was put in place, mostly backed by Western allies. But in October 2021, General Bahan and Hamedi worked together to stage a coup against that civilian government, which was quite weak and ineffective. Since then, The country has been run by General Bahan with the support of Hameti, but tensions have been growing between the two. There's been a power struggle over who actually controls the country. So in December 2022, both generals reluctantly signed a Western-backed framework agreement, which gave them a timeline to transition to a civilian-led government, which would see both of the generals cede some of their power to civilian political parties. But that agreement had a rapid and somewhat arbitrary timeline of this April, this month, to coincide with the four-year anniversary of the overthrow of Bashir and also the end of Ramadan was the time when the democratic transition was supposed to be complete. That didn't happen. There was an April 11th deadline that came and went with no one signing. And... Around that time, we saw the RSF start to spread its forces around the country and a few days later, fighting broke out.
1: And can you maybe tell us about these two figures? Because it seems, at least from here, to be quite personality driven and quite very much about them as individuals and the factions that they rule. Who are these two people, Abdel Fattah Bouhan and Hamibdi, uh, and what do they represent?
2: Yeah, definitely. So General Bahan, who was close to Bashir for much of his career and who rose the ranks through the army to become the general, he has been the de facto leader. And some have suspected that actually he was attempting to restore Bashir's old regime. He's part of the Sudanese elite. That's where the regime stronghold came from in Khartoum, in the capital. Hamedi is a completely different figure. He was a camel trader in Defor who became a warlord. He was a commander of the militia of the Janjaweed, which helped oversee the genocide in Darfur under Bashir's orders. And the Janjaweed evolved into what is today now the RSF. So he's had a very significant evolution throughout his career and has really risen in power. And part of the things, the reason that these two generals have had such a combative relationship It all goes back to the way that Omar al-Bashir ruled. He really wanted to spread out power within the country. He didn't want his military to be too powerful, which is why he did give certain powers, economic powers, and also control to different militias throughout the country. This was an attempt to proof his regime. He thought if any one faction of the military or political faction didn't have that much power, he would be insulated from anyone overthrowing him. Obviously, he didn't Calculate on everyone banding together and working against him, which is what ended up happening. But even though Burhan and Mehdi did work together, they still have been opposed in a lot of ways because they spent so many years working at opposite ends. They had different interests economically. Burhan and the Sudan army was involved in construction and mining in banks within the country, Whereas Hermeti and the RSF, they oversaw gold mining and mercenary services in the country. So they basically effectively had all of these separate empires and these power silos. And one of the key things that really was a huge problem under this framework agreement where they were meant to have this transition towards a civilian government is that the RSF was supposed to be integrated with into the Sudan military. And there was huge disagreements on the timeline of when that would happen. Burhan wanted that happen within two years and happen quite rapidly and quickly, whereas Hamedi wanted to take a decade for that to happen, obviously, so he could drag out the influence and power that he had.
1: And in terms of kind of outside actors who maybe have a stake in this, can you just run us through the different countries who maybe have, have an interest in this conflict and who, which countries are backing which sides in, in this civil war?
2: Yeah, definitely. There there are a lot of them, actually. The regional actors and global actors who've taken a significant interest in what's going on in Sudan is actually quite surprising in a way, just the sheer number of it. So Egypt, its na- neighboring Egypt, is very interested and they support Burhan. They also have a military ruler. They really like rally behind him. So that's the main supporter that Burhan has in the region whereas Saudi Arabia and the UAE are quite close with Hometi, mostly because Hametti has supplied RSF troops to the war in Yemen. So he managed to align himself with those actors in that way. Russia has been angling for access to the Red Sea port for quite some time, and the Wagner Group provides weapons for the RSF, which is another way that uh, Russia can get some more influence within the country. China is one of the biggest foreign investors in the country. So far, China has not taken sides. I can't imagine they're likely to at the moment. Katie might have some insight on how China feels at that. But from my understanding, China is just economically invested and doesn't really have much interest in the actual outcome. But from the economic interest side, they would prefer stability than civil war western influences the un and the us and britain have been very involved in trying to get through this agreement framework their interests have mostly lied in just pushing for a democratic a transition to a democracy but there's been a lot of criticism of the west in general and the us and the un in particular of not really Acknowledging the reality on the ground and the sheer complexity of the situation, and especially with this rapid timeline that left really no time whatsoever to resolve some pretty long standing and complex grievances, that's really, I think, contributed to obviously a lot of the suddenness of this outbreak of fighting. And then there's just the neighbors like Chad, Ethiopia, who don't actually have much influence in what's happening, but will be directly impacted by the sheer fallout of this. We've already seen tens of thousands of people fleeing the country. The UN expects it could be as many as a hundred thousand fleeing into Chad. So it, it will get pretty ugly.
0: Just to pick up on something you said there, Megan, I know you've written about whether the West should have seen this coming and how both suddenly but also not suddenly this has happened. When we look back now and as you explain, there's a very clear path to this conflict. I guess to to put this bluntly, should this have been seen coming? Is it reasonable that so many countries are now professing will shock and surprise to see this situation unfold?
2: Bluntly, yes. A lot of countries and international actors should have seen something coming. Maybe not the scale or the sheer brutality of what we've seen so far, but they definitely should have seen that there were hostilities that were increasing and that the situation and talks were rapidly breaking down. There's been a lot of talk about the UK evacuation and whether then it's been responsive enough or quick enough or what British citizens are owed by their country, whether they ordinary citizens and not just diplomats should be helped out of the country. But you look at what the actual situation with the embassy was at the time that fighting broke out and Three of the top diplomats, including the ambassador, were on holiday when the fighting broke out. This is all around a time when an agreed-upon deadline had been set. So it wasn't quite some spontaneous, out-of-nowhere thing. There was definitely a deadline and a timeline that everyone was heading towards, and there were signs there.
1: Thanks so much. I'm sure we'll come back to this story Wherever you are in the world,
2: if you're interested in global affairs,
1: you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as one pound a week. That's 12 weeks for just 12 pounds.
2: That's one euro a week in Europe and just two dollars a week in America.
1: Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer.
0: From The New Statesman comes audio long reads. The best of our reported features and essays, read aloud.
1: The expensive house that sucked up a lifetime's wages became the savings account, the pension, the inheritance. That wealth is now beginning to dissolve.
0: Featuring writing from our authors, including... Will Dunn on The Great Housing Con. Why the coming crash will rewrite the economy. Sophie McBain on what's behind the surge in adult
2: ADHD diagnoses. It's not pure coincidence that ADHD diagnoses have risen alongside the internet's attention economy, a vast infrastructure that has been designed to capture and monetize people's focus. And Karl-Uwe
0: Knausgaard on why the novel still matters.
1: The poet Rainer Maria Rilke once wrote that music could lift him up. Of course, there's nothing remarkable about that. Only he then added, and put me down somewhere else. I recognise that quote so well especially when it comes to literature.
0: Ease into the weekend with our Audio Long Reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from The New Statesman, wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high quality essentials. You'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping at 365 day returns.
0: Life is full of what ifs, some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry?
1: Ron DeSantis' early forays into national politics have fallen flat. The man who so recently looked like the great hope of the Republican Party after his landslide re-election in Florida's governor's race in November is floundering. The US polling website 538 showed DeSantis 25 points behind Donald Trump in national primary polls on the 23rd of April. Casey, you've written a piece for this week's magazine on DeSantis' flailing, as-yet-undeclared campaign for the Republican nomination, Can you just walk us through the situation over the past, I guess, year or maybe few months? Because DeSantis really seemed to be doing incredibly well in this undeclared contest against Trump. And as you set out in your piece in recent weeks and months, that star seems to have faded somewhat. So where are we?
0: Yeah, I think if we go back to November of last year and the U.S. Midterm elections where the Democrats did better than I think they were expecting and than a number of analysts were expecting. They still narrowly lost the House, but they lost fewer seats than had been predicted. And it was broadly a very bad night for the more extreme Trump backed candidates. So you had losses for people like Mehmet Oz, Harry Lake in Arizona. But the Republican who seemed to do really well that night was Ron DeSantis. He was reelected to a second term as Florida's governor by a huge margin. So you had this sort of split screen effect that night of DeSantis giving his victory speech to euphoric crowds in Florida and really looking like the future of the Republican party. Trump was hosting a victory, and I use that very loosely, party at Mar-a-Lago, but it was really very muted. He left the night early, and he was really beginning to look like his star was on the wane. He was yesterday's man. It was DeSantis, who was this sort of bright, shiny Republican candidate of the future. And in fact, the next day, the headline on the New York Post, the Rupert Murdoch-owned tabloid, was De future. So it looked then like he was really the man to watch. He was understood to be personally very interested in a bid for the 2024 election. But over the months since then, he has really failed to get off the starting line. There are a number of elements to it. Number one is the politics. He has made a number of decisions that have given particularly significant Republican donors cause for real concern. I think one of the key issues is a ban on abortions in Florida after 6 weeks which is extreme that's a, at a point when most women don't actually even know pregnant and it's not popular nationwide the polls consistently show a majority of americans generally around 6 in 10 want abortion to be legal in most circumstances so that might play well with the sort of extreme right-wing and perhaps with sections of the Florida electorate, but that's catastrophic politics nationwide. And we've seen that as a real issue that has helped Democrats. It helped in the midterm elections. It's a central plank of Joe Biden's just announced re-election campaign, is we will protect access to abortion. So that caused a couple of significant donors. One was the billionaire Thomas Petterfee, who told the Financial Times that he was putting his donations to DeSantis on hold because of his stance on abortion and because of his stance on other social issues like book book banning. So for people who haven't been following it very closely, DeSantis has declared himself as this warrior on woke ideology. He consistently and quite excruciatingly tries to channel Churchill talking about never ever surrendering to the woke mob. But in practice, what that has meant is a campaign against really quite a wide number of books that offend some conservative groups that have now been withdrawn from many Florida public schools, their libraries, and this very infamous piece of legislation generally known as the Don't Say Gay Law, which started last year as a restriction on education in Florida schools for children from kindergarten to third grade, which is eight years old, forbidding most education on sexual orientation and gender identity. And at the time that was sold as it was easy to make that argument to some parents that wasn't appropriate for children of that age. So there wasn't a great deal of outcry, even though when you actually think about it, of course, all children from all ages need to understand that families come in all sorts of shapes and sizes and Anyway, I won't go into the details of it, but it was not a great outcry at the time, but it has since been expanded earlier this month to include children in Florida schools of all grades right up until the senior year in high school. So that is a really dangerous road to go down if you're preventing teachers from being able to talk about sexual orientation, gender identity, right up until the end of high school. So those three political decisions have really cast him as quite an extremist. I think the hope, as I say, back in November was that he would be more moderate than Trump. He would still appeal to Trump's base. He would still deliver some of the rhetoric, but he wouldn't be quite as an extreme figure. And he would be someone who could appeal more to swing voters, to people who aren't necessarily affiliated strongly with one party or another, and that he would be a more appealing candidate than Donald Trump. But his Politics have shown he he isn't that, but he also isn't the kind of great charismatic figure that Trump, love him or hate him, really is. Trump can command a room. Trump can excite a huge rally of supporters. DeSantis has consistently shown that he can't. That he actually is quite awkward in his interactions with voters. He's fine speaking off an autocue. He's not great at small talk, and by all accounts, does not enjoy it. So both his Political sort of policy decisions and then his grasp of actual, just real politics and particularly the kind of retail side of politics really seem to be lacking. So he is polling still way ahead of everyone else in the Republican field other than Trump, but very far below Donald Trump. At the last count, he was 25 points behind Donald Trump in national primary polls.
2: Katie, yeah, I like you made the point about his woodenness and how terrible he is, basically, at small talk and speeches. There was a line in a piece, a great piece that you wrote for us, about how he tried to cast himself as... Trump without the chaos, but he's actually Trump without the charisma. And I think when you see a, his speaking voice and the way he delivers any of his messages, it's very, it's not just that it's uninspiring and wooden, it's quite silly. And he's just, I don't want to paint Trump as someone with a lot of gravitas or anything, but it's just, he's really quite like a mockable figure. And as we've seen before, any, anyone with a weakness is really susceptible to being torn apart by Donald Trump. I was wondering if you can kind of speak to the attacks that Donald Trump has already undertaken against DeSantis.
0: Yeah, I mean DeSantis is in this position that is the case for all of the Republican candidates where they really haven't figured out yet how to handle Donald Trump. They don't want to attack him full on because they don't want to make an enemy of him. And more crucially, they don't want to alienate his voters. Anyone who's going to win the Republican primary needs to appeal to Trump's supporters. So they're trying to thread this very difficult needle of distancing themselves from Trump, but not disparaging his supporters and not alienating his base. And absolutely counterintuitively, Trump's criminal cases, since he was charged with 34 felony counts at the beginning of April in a New York case, have really helped him. He had been looking pretty uninspiring before that. His polling numbers were fairly consistent, but he wasn't surging. The difference once he was charged, once he was arrested, once he appeared in court, was he blasted back into the mainstream TV channels that had been largely declining to cover his speeches, were suddenly showing him again and following him around. And there was a lot of coverage of Trump by people who had previously decided they were moving on from Trump. But I think more significantly, then the Republican establishment really just went into lockstep behind him. And you had people even like DeSantis, who did not mention Trump by name, but came out against the case and said, this is un-American and positioned himself as somebody who was going to not He was going to refuse to extradite Trump from Florida, even though he was never realistically going to be asked to do that. So now that Trump has been charged with a criminal offense, with 34 criminal offenses, and may well face further charges, there are three other active criminal investigations into him. But that has made him bulletproof within the party, because people don't want to go against him. They're coming out against the prosecution instead. So that's made it even harder for these other Republicans like DeSantis to land a blue on him. And it's really just sucked the oxygen out of the room again. So none of this necessarily helps Trump in a national election. Biden has now announced that he is running for re-election. And this doesn't necessarily boost his prospects against Biden in the general election. But the real problem for every other Republican is how to get past Trump in the primary. And DeSantis is really in danger of flaming out. He has also made quite a number of enemies. He visited Washington DC last week, which he seemed to be hoping that he was going to have a bunch of Congress people endorse him. But instead, a number of them, including from Florida, his home state, announced on the eve of the visit that they were endorsing Donald Trump instead. And people were briefing, it looks like Politico, about how arrogant DeSantis had been during his own term in Congress how he was only really interested in Ron DeSantis, how he wouldn't bother to speak to his colleagues when he was based in DC. He would turn up right at the start of the vote and go. So that matters when it comes now to trying to mount a national campaign because you just don't have those reservoirs of goodwill. And you have all the time this sort of looming shadow of Donald Trump, who again, nobody wants to get on the wrong side of because everybody is interested in their own political futures. So there is still time to turn this around. It is April 2023. The first Republican primary will not be until January of next year. And there are, as I said, three more active criminal investigations into Donald Trump. So if Donald Trump's prospects fade, then Ron DeSantis is far and away the leading candidate in the field. All of the other candidates are pulling in single figures or within the margin of error. But that's a pretty big if is just to hope that Donald Trump stumbles and that DeSantis is able to pass him.
1: Right. Well, I'm sure that's a story that we're going to come back to as well. Before we finish, we'd just like to say thank you to our brilliant producer, Mae Robson.
2: Yeah, each week, May has been one of the driving forces of this podcast and the reason we all sound so sharp and smart. Sadly,
0: this is the final episode of World Review that May will be producing. We will miss her immensely. She is such a superstar. We've been so lucky to work with her. And we just wanted to say one last time, thank you, May. Uh, And we wish you all the best with your next adventures.
1: If you're a regular World Review listener and haven't already subscribed, please subscribe. And do give us five stars and leave us a nice review if you so feel like it. May is blowing kisses. You. <laughs> oh, <basically. laughs> Our producer for the last time has been Mary Robson. Thank you for listening. And until next time.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.